So uh, we viewed culture war as sort of this, this battle in order to define the sacred and profane of a, of a culture and society. And this has existed, you know, probably uh, from time immemorial, whenever, for how long cultures existed. That was Peter Lindbergh, who I'll be interviewing today. We talked about the concept of memes and Mimetic Tribes based on his Medium post, Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0, which will be linked in the show notes at diginocrypto.com slash EP61. The article was written by Peter Lindbergh and Connor Barnes, which seeks to help quantify this new front of the culture war, how it fits into the six crises that we are experiencing, and to kind of uh, collate these groups in the West. This discussion fits perfectly into episode 47, in which I interviewed Professor John Verveke on the meaning crisis and how secularization and rejection of traditional institutions, Christianity in particular, has led to a crisis in our culture of meaning in our lives. Peter Lindbergh is a writer, podcast host, and philosophical explorer. Peter, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Dustin. So, as I said for for the listeners, as I said in the uh, introduction, we're going to be discussing the article that uh, Peter wrote. Uh, gosh, how many? Uh, what year was that? Was that? Oh, that was twenty eighteen. So about a year ago, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, it was entitled uh, "Mimetic Tribes in, in Culture War 2.0. and I've. This whole month is going to be basically uh, I'm doing kind of really going deep into just kind of general philosophy and and memetics. I did a, a interview that'll be coming out um, or came out last week before you, uh, the listeners are hearing this called uh, memetic theory on Rene Girard's theory. And then we're going to be doing a uh, episode after this about the generals um, uh, general topic of, of stoicism. Uh, but uh, c- can you give like a little bit of a, a background on yourself and what kind of got you interested in philosophy in the first place? That's interesting um, that you mentioned Stoicism because I, I run uh, the Stoic group here in Toronto, which is actually uh, the largest Stoic group in the world at, at the moment. Um, and I guess my story kind of does start there because when I was in university uh, a while back now, um, you know, I was a philosophy major and Stoicism wasn't really taught in, in, in university. It was mentioned in maybe in a 101 class. Um, and then maybe about two and a half years ago now, I started that Stoicism group with a friend here in Toronto, and it just, just grew. But there is a, a desire to, to kind of engage in different thought because I'm a pretty jazzy thinker. I love, uh, I love just like diving into different worldviews, whether... They're across all the spectrums, the political spectrum, the philosophical spectrum, the theological spectrum. So I created this group here in Toronto called the Intellectual Explorers Club, which eventually uh, became a podcast. And we use a group that we, we meet. Um, I view us as performative agnostics. And how I hold that is, is understanding... Uh, a worldview to be true without accepting it to be true. So having the capacity to to really understand a different position uh, without kind of adopting it yourself. So one thing that was interesting about this group, the Intellectual Explorers Club, was 
due to the frame, the sort of like meta frame, it invited all sorts of different uh, individuals. Uh, we had feminists, men's rights activists, uh, conservatives, liberals, you name it. And it was here, it, me in the, in the middle of, usually it was done in a circle, being this performative agnostic and just kind of accepting these worldviews without judging them, it was almost felt like the, the group mind of those groups was uh, schizophrenic in a way, or, or maybe it was like a, a four-month baby being born type thing. And everyone was just waiting for their return to just spout out their ideas, just to kind of abuse you with their, uh, abuse your reality with their worldview. And so it was sort of a mini version of the culture war that I was experiencing, but sort of in the, this friendly, performative, agnostic Canadian frame. Um, so I think that experience uh, afforded me sort of the sensitivity towards understanding the, all these different worldviews, which led to this, this white paper called Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0 that you mentioned that we released uh, last year with my co-author, Connor Barnes. And something about this white paper was just like, it just, it just kind of went viral among certain kind of intellectual circles, got retweeted by a bunch of uh, big names and, you know, went on the podcast circuit, must've went on like uh, 10 different podcasts for, for this white paper alone. Uh, and something about it just really resonated uh, with people from all sides of the, the spectrum. Yeah, no, when I first came across it and I can't remember you know, it's funny because you come across like ideas or or just, you know, people and concepts and then, you know, you, you can't you you identify with it and then you can't uh, remember when you first first came across it. But uh, when I when I read that article, it, it really you know spoke to me because the I mean, I kind of grew up uh, or came of age and kind of, you know, 90s uh, politics or I shouldn't say came of age, but my like my youth and kind of really conscious introduction to the political landscape was kind of, you know, the, the post uh, Clinton impeachment era and all that. And that was kind of really towards the end. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit as well, but kind of the really the end of the culture war from the, the, the point of view of what was kind of raging in the, in the eighties uh, post sixties uh, revolution era of the religious rights resurgence. Um, but, you know, seeing this, there's been a lot of great writing around this topic um, and kind of the dangers of the period that we're in because of this increased, um, I, I don't want to say increased polarization because it makes it sound as though this is some unique time of polarization. But when you, you know, if you just harken back to like, you know, post-World War One Germany or whatever, you know, our polarization is nowhere near um, or not as, as precipitously, precipitously dangerous as theirs, but uh, it, it's it is a real weird kind of uh, turning point or fulcrum point in kind of the changing of the American and the greater Western landscape of what the norm is and how we are going to approach these problems. Um, but, you know, I was wondering if actually we can start off just real basic and if maybe you can kind of discuss I mean, because you're calling them memetic tribes. A lot of people would associate this with memes, right? And uh, that's kind of the, the colloquial understanding of it. But the, we're not talking about, you know, the funny pictures, although some of them play within this sphere. Um, but it's it's a much bigger concept. So why don't you, if you could start out describing, you know, what are memetic tribes in themselves? Sure. 
Yeah, like you alluded to, there's this uh, kind of goofy version of, of meme, like cat cat images or videos going viral on the internet. And then there's the Richard Dawkins, you should sub it. Um, essentially, it's a unit of information that uh, replicates itself from one mind to another. Um, and I have the, the paper in front of me. And so this is how we define memetic tribes. Uh, so we define memetic tribe as a group of agents with a meme complex or memeplex that directly or indirectly seeks to impose its distinct map of reality along with its moral imperatives on others. Um, these tribes are on active duty in the new culture war. So the idea here is that uh, kind of a constellation of uh, memeplexes or memes, we call it a memeplex. So essentially uh, Christianity is a memeplex, uh, Buddhism is a memeplex, um, uh, social justice activists are a memeplex, uh, the alt-right's a memeplex. Uh, so we, we view uh, these mimetic tribes as kind of ones that are active in the wild, not just ones that are active in philosophy books or history books, uh, are the ones that are active players in the culture war. And, you know, it's, it's you know, really interesting. This will actually kind of roll somewhat right into the, uh, in, in your article, you described um, six crises that uh, that the Western society is kind of undergoing right now. Uh, the the first of it is is the the meaning crisis and kind of all these crises are kind of what are leading to um, or creating the the conditions for these these mimetic tribes. I guess actually, why don't we roll back just a little bit? Um, are these would you describe mimetic tribes as being a new thing or are the the like in as far as the article d description? And you give like a whole list of all the ones that we kind of uh, are at the forefront in today's culture war. Um, have we always had mimetic tribes of a sort, or is this kind of a, a new incarn a new incarnation of a, of an old idea? Right, uh, and I want to just pause uh, myself uh, in the sense that I, I don't desire to be an authority on on this matter. Um, this paper was uh, deliciously speculative on my end. Uh, and I wanted to present uh, a new frame of understanding or thinking about the culture war that would serve as sort of a psychoactive drug in the sense where it kind of jogs you out of your own perspective. So I'm not really attached to the truth claims that we put forth, probably being a good performative agnostic, I'm not attached to the truth claims that we put forth oh, in course. this white paper. Um, but to to answer your question, yeah, I, I definitely think that the, this this idea of medic tribes, sort of like ide ideologies, have existed for a while. But what might be unique about our situation is it's like the medic tribes, thanks to the internet, there seems to be a disembodied uh, element to it. Where like I'm at the edge of my thinking right now, this is not something that we put on our white paper. Uh, I like this distinction between mimetic tribes versus embodied tribes. Where embodied tribes are like you know you get the sense of, uh, of tribalism or the feeling of tribalism being in person in the flesh, having that connection, deep coherence with people or mimetic tribes is sort of, you, you get that hit of tribalism, but through memes that you pass around on the internet, the political memes, the ph philosophical memes with people you might not even know. Um, and then just to, to zoom back on the, uh, before we get into the, the crises, uh, the, the second part of the, the, the title was mimetic tribes and culture war 2.0. So, uh, we viewed culture war as sort of this this battle in order to define the sacred and profane of a, of a culture and society. And this has existed, you know, probably uh, from time immemorial, whenever, for how long cultures existed. Um, and 
that there's this frame, like in the 1990s, uh, the culture war 1.0 was like this left and right. Uh, there was a, a secular left versus a religious right. And the, the battlegrounds there were like gay marriage, uh, abortion, women's rights, etc. teaching religion in, in school, stuff like that. And there was a frame, at least an understanding back then, that this was sort of uh, uh, what we call bipolar war or what international relations calls a bipolar war, where there's just like a, like the Cold War was a bipolar war in the sense of the Soviet Union and the United States, where we're inviting the frame now, uh, we're inviting the reader to suggest or to speculate on this frame with us is that now uh, the religious right and culture war 1.0 lost. And now we enter this, this phase called culture war 2.0, where there's a multitude of mimetic tribes battling each other, um, not only the left and right, but internally, there's the, the left is internally battling each other, the right is internally battling each other to sort of define what culture is. Well, it's, yeah, it, just to just to go back uh, to, as far as for not uh, making truth claims on on uh, being expert on that. I mean, that's kind of the the purpose of of what I am doing uh, with this podcast, and and uh, is is basically me uh, just kind of on this quest to find uh, you know truth wherever it lies, and and not necessarily uh, you know trying to be the be all end all um or the guests that i have on as well of of any specific topic but i mean we're all kind of on this journey trying to figure out um where we can find um some sort of uh, uh truth in in wherever we can find it but um right. I, I mean i i i very much identify with that but um but yeah go, going back to to the the meaning crisis is it, this is the the first of the six crises that you laid out, and I, I was wondering uh, if you're actually familiar with the work of Professor Jean Verveke at all. Yeah, um, I'm actually collaborating with oh, okay, uh, John right now on uh, on a research project into authentic dialogue, and, and he used to be my uh, meditation teacher when I was uh, at the University of Toronto. So I know I know John quite well. Oh, okay, excellent. Actually, I interviewed him on on the episode forty seven of this podcast uh, as well, specifically about the um, the meaning crisis. And and uh, for the listeners, I would encourage you um, to to listen to the. He's got what is, I think now is like forty four uh, part right. series on this, but um, you know, so I, I could definitely. I, I figured you were. I mean, uh, just by the way that it was written, I was like, well, that's exactly what what John was talking about. Um, but yeah, it's just there's, I mean, you you see that a lot um, with I, I see that specifically in well, I guess all these sorts of mimetic tribes. I mean, uh, you see that with the the alt right, and that's such a nebulous group um, where there's you know elements of of people that are you know within white uh, uh, separatist or supremacist organizations alongside people that don't really believe that, but um, are kind of glomming on into that amalgus form, um, mainly just more in opposition to the left. Uh, but a lot of those people, or I just see any kind of concept of uh, racial supremacist movements is is this search for meaning, right? And the the lack the lack of finding it in another form, whether it's religious or what what have you, uh, mm. is that they they gravitate towards this idea of. Well, meaning is found in the militant content of my skin, 
um, or the the historical achievements of of people that came from the same geographic area as me. I find that to be very strange, um, but it could just be a 21st century way of of looking at things. But if you don't mind, uh, as we go through these, if you would, if you would like to describe the the different crises um, as we move through them, sure. Uh, so, like you mentioned, uh, the first one. So each we we did six crises, and we we did an ingredient for for each of the crises. So the, the first one uh, was the meaning crisis, and this was before uh, we released this paper before John uh, started doing his awakening from the meaning crisis series. But I got this. I think I got this term from him from uh, his zombie book. I forget the name of it, but it's, it's quite good. And. So the, the secularization is just sort of, you know, that we start with the Nietzschean, God is dead, um, and we have killed him, famous line, and how the sort of Christianity, the, what the postmodern is called a meta-narrative, sort of like a, a narrative that uh, holds all other narratives and makes sense of everything. That got exploded uh, in, in our culture, and this kind of left a void and a vacuum uh, for people looking for meaning. And a lot of secularization theorists predicted that like, oh, this, you know, untethering of religious authority from society would just like make everyone rational and scientific. Uh, but that didn't happen, you know, and Charles Taylor, a, a, a wonderful Canadian philosopher who wrote the book, A Secular Age, uh, he rejects this uh, subtra uh, subtraction theory in the sense that you just remove rel religion from our institutions. Everyone's going to become like rational and scientific. Uh, instead, people are going to run into all these different uh, narratives. There's going to be a pluralism going on where multiple viewpoints compete alongside of Christianity. Um, and the way I, I view it, and John, uh, his, his, through his series, obviously, does a much more sophisticated analysis here. But the way I view it is that there's um, a, meta, a meta narrative, something that holds the story together, so to speak, that sort of justifies, gives the intellectual architecture for an ecology, what John also calls an ecology of practices, uh, that could invoke this felt sense uh, of meaningfulness uh, and sustain it, you know, because I think I love that line where, where John says, um, you know, don't tell me uh, what you believe to be true. Tell me what you practice. Right. And, and it, it is like most people, when they think, oh, what's the meaning of life? They think about like, oh, give me a proposition so that I can just run with it. But where I like this idea of, of distinction between what is the meaning versus what is meaningful and meaningful is sort of a felt sense emotion um, that could be upheld by what you practice in life. But this whole kind of system, the meta narrative, the ecology of practices got blown up. And so now, like you mentioned uh, with the alt-right, and I would argue with most of the like 30 something mimetic tribes we, we listed on that spreadsheet, they're trying to find meaning elsewhere. Oh, sorry. There, it just uh, it went, went unmute for me. And w within this, I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm. I'm trying to uh, the, form this question, but you know, John had uh, talked about in in the interview of creating a a new meta narrative, uh, um, I guess a secular one to to replace um, this the 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 destruction the the blowing up as he said of the of the old meta narratives. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that humanity needs uh, a, a meta narrative, or can there be uh, meaning found uh, without a meta narrative? Kind of a, I, I guess, in, in kind of a really extreme version of, of individualism, 
um, without having, cause you can have a meta narrative within a group of like five people. Um, but do, do you think that there's a way to do that um, uh, on an individual level versus kind of a, a larger group? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I admit I haven't watched all of John's uh, 50 plus uh, or yeah. at this point to 50. I haven't watched all his 50 episodes yet. Um, but last time I spoke to him, I, I think he's, he's skeptical of this idea that we can have a grand narrative uh, alone or just by itself. We can kind of uh, all the galaxy brains constructed and then, you know, everyone's happy. I, I think there has to be a co-creation process. Um, so I'm more attracted to trying to discover instead of, um, an ecumenical philosophy or an ecumenical meta narrative, uh, rather, uh, see if we can find uh, an ecumenical practice that could be like a spiritual iPhone, if you will, that could be marketed to all these various different tribes, uh, get them to adopt it and see if it transforms them uh, from within. And the next, uh, crisis that you mentioned was, was the reality crisis, um, and I, I thought that uh, this is one of the more interesting um, uh, crises that you mentioned. I'll, I'll save my my comment uh, until after you describe it. But if uh, if you could describe what the reality crisis is and how it um, manifests itself, kind of the the larger culture war. Yeah. So the the reality crisis and the ingredient there is fragmentation, um, and that's what. Uh, Leotard, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's a, that's what he he considers as the postmodern condition. Like a lot of people uh, think postmodern is all about relativism, radical relativism, but Leotard said it's about fragmentation, about how um, there is not one meta narrative that's keeping everyone sort of in check. Uh, there's all these different fragmented uh, narratives at play, which which he called little narratives, and they all kind of have their own epistemology and metaphysics. Uh, they're not really talking to each other, and they don't even know how to talk to each other. There's what he calls uh, the different, um, and, and other philosophers uh, call it uh, deep disagreements. Uh, so there's like deep disagreements between these sort of little narratives, or what we call mimetic tribes, that that doesn't allow them to talk to each other because they use different kind of uh, languages and means to to get to the truth. Uh, and I like Scott Adams, uh, the Dilbert, um, you know, comic artist. He, he called the, the what's, what was the thing? Two movie screens to explain the culture war, right? So the if you the same reality is happening, let's say Trump's impeachment. Um, but if you you tune into Fox News or turn into CNN, it's like watching two different movie screens, and, and you're you're almost watching different realities, but they're still reporting on the same reality. And so the you can just like the smell and taste the bias when when you turn on on, on television. And so we invite the the, the readers into this piece is that we don't just have two movie screens; we have like a Netflix Netflix variety of uh, of shows available for us to watch, and that's all these different uh, mimetic tribes competing for our attention and um, basically trying to get us to believe their truth claims. And I, I, I'd, uh, you know, I, I was really taken with, with Scott, Scott Adams' description of this. And it's, it is really, it, it is really interesting. I think that a lot of people like to blame technology um, and it does play a part um, and it has presented a new front in this, but I um, I do agree that in in this sense I think it 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 does uh, really exacerbate this because like you said they're speaking different languages and we see this extremely um, uh, noted on the on the extremes of of the political spectrum I guess you could say is that um, you know I I just remember uh, you know even just fifteen twenty years ago um, it was 
you know, the let's just take the Iraq war um, mm. uh, for being one one big issue, at least in the United States. Um, you know, you had a issue everybody agreed was an issue, but you had two approaches to, you know, one side was saying we need to stay because of X reason. Another side saying we need to get, uh, you know, out of there for X, you know, for Y reason. And now it seems like you said, it's, it's there. Each side has different issues and neither side is half the time even describing the same thing when they're talking about, you know, we see, let's just say the, the social justice activists um, will, you know, talk about uh, uh, recognition of, you know, varying genders or cultural appropriation or whatever it's as central issues. Whereas the alt-right um, will see something like immig immigration or something like that as a central issue. But even when they talk about something similarly as, as gender questions, uh, they're not even speaking the same language or uh, you, you see these, almost completely different languages being formed. Like if you hang out in um, whether it's Facebook uh, groups or, or the, you know, Twitter kind of um, little spheres, whether of, of left or right, or, or I should say mm -hmm. not left or right. Cause we're beyond that now of these different tribes, like they are using completely different languages and indicators. And a lot of times the language is really how you can identify someone by their tribe, by the way that they refer to something or, or, um, you know, like you just like in Twitter profiles, you'll see that you can usually tell that someone is not going to be in, let's say, the alt right or the new right or uh, whatever, if they're doing like him slash her, they them or whatever in their Twitter mm -hmm. profile. You can tell by that language difference that mm -hmm. they are of a completely different mimetic tribe and speak completely or very differently uh, different languages for how they interact with right. within that, those groups. Yeah, and, and I invite everyone, uh, if you look at my uh, Twitter followers or the people who I follow, I should say, I follow everyone. And so you, you, you get a sense of the tribal markers real quick in that sense. And I also invite the, the listeners to kind of like get some news discipline in the sense uh, and go to a website called All Sides, which I, I quite like. I interviewed John Gable on my podcast, Intellectual Explorers podcast. Uh, and basically the All Sides is... is, is a, a platform where a news uh, when, a, when something happens, an event, you see the headlines and the perspectives and the biases from all the different platforms that are news platforms that are reporting on it. So it's a good way to build a kind of a sensitivity to the, the perspectives at play. Yeah, I, I, you know, it is really there's I did an interview uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about one coin, which is this massive Ponzi scheme that was going on after Bitcoin came out. I mean, I, uh, in our previous conversations, I know that you're not that uh, tuned into, into that world, but there was a lot of people who came out and tried to create their own, you know, things or whatever. Some of them with good intentions, some of them just straight up to steal money. Mm. This was the latter. Um, and they didn't even actually have any tech actual technology it was a straight up ponzi mlm scheme mm -hmm. of just stealing people's money and in that we were talking about there's what those people did was that they created this cult of personality around the person uh dr ruja and they said that she had a 200 plus iq and she went to all these ivy league schools and you know they would constantly just say thank you dr ruja trust dr ruja she you know she's the smartest one of the smartest people in the world and we talked about this idea of it's really difficult 
there's no oracle um, that you can point to as being some arbiter of objective truth and saying, well, you know, this side's saying this and this side's saying that and there's some grains of truth, but here's this oracle that's going to kind of spit out a very even keeled um, bit of information uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, it, that's a really difficult thing. And you think, and I've always thought, you know, early on in the internet, I was like, oh, it's great. We have all this information. Now people are going to be way more educated. It's it's going to be harder to pull wool over people's eyes, which in some aspects it has. But you have this information overload and it's near impossible to be able to really, for the average person with a lot on their plate to go, I've got like 20 minutes a night to read the news, to, to be able to spend the time to look at a hundred different sources to really try to needle this out. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's it's depressing on one hand. There's this sort of like war on sense making that's going on, as Daniel Schmarkenberger calls it. Um, you know, we're living in a post-truth, fake news world type thing. But I see it as a form of opportunity. And, and personally, I feel very excited about uh, the age we're living in because it's an opportunity to flex our, our philosophical muscles um, and maybe emancipate philosophy from the, the walls of academia and, and all become uh, philosophically minded and get away from what Jordan Hall calls simulated thinking and into real thinking. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, the the concept of uh, the the kind of brick and mortar institutions of 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 hallowed learning um, are increasingly becoming, and in many ways, it's a good thing. That, I mean, in, in some ways, um, there there is uh, uh, good aspects of having you know, some sort of um, central points of of learning and all that. But I think it's uh, better for humanity to have kind of these decentralized. Um, networks of of kind of education and yeah. and information and learning and the ability to kind of for, for people to spread their wings and kind of really take chances um, whereas a lot of people in academia are very um, you know depending on who and where they are in their career but uh, are, are, are don't take as many chances just because um, either they might be um, shunned by their by their peers in their same departments or whatever but i think that mm. overall it's a it's a very good thing yeah, yeah. um and uh next was the atomization crisis yeah so it, the ingredient was atomization and then the the crisis was the the belonging crisis and this is you know you can kind of like insert your capitalistic critique here but there's a sense that we're all feeling alienated and atomized and we're not really connecting uh, with one another, in especially in urban environments. And then there's this term from C. Wright Mills I quite like uh, called the marketing mentality. And the idea here is we don't only treat other, another person as an instrument to be used uh, as a means to an end, but we also make ourselves into instruments. So to, to lean on Martin Buber's term of I-it relating versus I-thou relating, I it relating is, you know, you treat someone as an object, an instrument to get something, right? So like a salesman trying to sell you a car, he's trying to be nice to you, create rapport, all that type of stuff, but he really needs that sale. That's what he wants you for in this interaction where, uh, an I thou type of, uh, relationship is treating the relationship as an end in itself. Um, and then the argument was at one point in, in some societies throughout the world, at one point in our, our human history, we lived in sort of this communitas, this feeling that we we, we had a deep connection with our, our, our fellow man and, and woman. 
uh, in, in these sort of communitas uh, situations, but that's been lost now. We're just treating each other as objects and we're making ourselves objects. Um, and so there's, there's this deep, deep loneliness. And I like to refer to it as existential loneliness, uh, which I experience often in, in my kind of the philosophy groups here I run in, in Toronto, where, where people are not there to understand, you know, they're there sort of just to, to wait and, and impose some kind of image, some kind of impression, some kind of idea. So maybe they feel accepted, loved or whatever. But I think that's the, the wrong way to go about it. So in any ways, this is this belonging crisis is that we're all lonely here. We all have this existential um, uh, loneliness. And so we're, we're, this is encouraging us to, to fall into this, this mimetic uh, tribalism where we attach ourselves. We, we get that hit of tribalism, um, but it's a cheap hit. You know, it's not, it's not the real deal, but we get it nonetheless through these uh, meme plexes that we, we, we adopt. What's funny, you, you mentioned um, that concept of, of loneliness, and it reminds me of that scene in, in Fight Club, uh, the David Fincher film from, I don't remember what year in 1990s, uh, but where the main character, uh, he goes around to uh, basically these groups of people who are either... Um, have been diagnosed with a disease or whatever. And then um, there's a, another woman that he sees at a bunch of these and they talk about how great it is in the cancer groups where everyone there ostensibly has terminal cancer. And they were, they, they talked about how nice it is because um, everyone there actually really listens to you um, and what you have to say versus just waiting for their, their own chance to speak. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a term I like conversational narcissism, where, you know, people are just uh, waiting for their turn, really. And then there's something called the, the shift response versus the support response. So the shift response, you keep just turning the attention on yourself. Um, and the support response is, you, you know, you, you ask questions, you turn the attention on the other person. And I think a healthy, individuated person has a balance between the two. But if someone's uh, just constantly turning the attention back on themselves, and maybe obvious or non-obvious ways, and you're dealing with a conversational narcissist. And, and to kind of expand that concept towards the mimetic tribes, I think um, a lot of the mimetic tribes are sort of egoic. You know, people are egoically attached to these ideas, and there's a narcissistic quality about the tribes themselves. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. It's um, it's really hard to quantify um the the way out of or i guess we should, you know like we said it, these things have been around for a while or i mean we've always had these sorts of of mimetic tribes but the uniqueness of this is kind of this uh disembodied nature of it uh, where you know you see this with with within each of these tribes is especially where a lot of these communities uh, or a, you know, a good chunk of these people because of the internet and its promise of bringing it, bringing us together, which it does is that now that if you identify with a specific ideology that becomes basically your, your identity. And mm -hmm. in, in instead of in, in person where people will try to force their own, uh, their own ego upon others to kind of dominate it seems as though 
people replace their individuality with that ideology. And no matter what interaction that you have, specifically online, um, and they'll go out and look for it, they're trying to find situations in which they can try to um, force that 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 uh, that group identity into right. every single conversation of of doesn't matter where you see it constantly in in mm-hmm. in uh, in comment threads. Yeah, there's uh, the, by the term from the meta modernist I like is uh, philosophical allergies. So you know if you hear a term, whether it's uh, white privilege or uh, toxic masculinity or you know, even good faith now, uh, that term good faith triggers some of the progressive tribes because, you know, it's used by centrists uh, or alt-centrists in the, the new intellectual dark web. So it's like, it's, it's interesting, these, these terms that are alive in the, the noosphere, the collective conscious actually triggers you on a certain level. It's like a cult to arms to just start throwing your memes at other people. Um, but if you're interested in kind of like, kind of, working through this process just just check what are your philosophical allergies what kind of concepts or mental models really bother you and, and maybe why that is what's what's the felt sense quality behind it and there's this term i like from acceptance commitment therapy or a technique i should say called cognitive diffusion where you do certain exercises like meditative exercises where you just sort of diffuse your your thoughts from your emotions right so you have a little bit of a distance from it and being a practicing stoic you know the when you run uh, your life through the stoic algorithm this naturally occurs and and, and and therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy their origins are from stoicism so but there's practices many practices out there buddhistic a stoic um you know psychotherapeutic that help you just kind of create that distance and it would be helpful for people to do that you know mimetic tribalists to do that as well uh and and if they were to do that they might become more embodied and next was the and and this kind of uh, very much well I guess that they all relate to each other but the globalization and and proximity crisis, right? Uh, so we referenced uh, Zuckerberg and a lot of these uh, tech utopianists about like you know how the internet's going to bring us together it's going to be wonderful. Um, uh, Marshall McLuhan, you know, his, he kind of predicted the internet this global village, but he didn't think it was going to be. Uh, you know, like all sunshine and roses is going to be, uh, I think he said, it's absolutely ensures maximal disagreement on all points. Uh, and sort of the idea here is, you know, you know, that's um, that quote that I used to love when I was in more of my like kind of like, you know, uh, feel good hippie days. <laughs> is that like if, if you know someone's complete uh, world, you cannot help but love them. And I, I think that is true to an extent, but there's studies uh, or psychologists called the similarity cascades. Uh, they actually found that the more we know uh, uh, about someone, the less we like them. So maybe it's true that if we know someone's complete reality, we cannot help but love them, but maybe we have to hate them first, right? Because um, we're now we're in the situation where this is this, uh, the internet, uh, Twitter, Facebook, that we're side by side in a way. There's, there's no fences anymore between these ideologies that are radically opposed to your own that will trigger your sacred values. Uh, you know, they say good fences make good neighbors, but we, we, we basically uh, blew out all the fences. And I wonder if um, McClellan, or um, am I pronouncing his name McLuhan. right? McClellan? McClellan. McClellan. Yeah. You know, you say that uh, he kind of saw the 
maximal disagreement, but that you know, kind of preceding this global village. I mean, I wonder, do you do you agree with that? Is that maybe that we're kind of in the process of a learning curve, and maybe over time, that you know, as we because digital interactions, I mean, as we know them, are are still so new. I mean, we, I grew up, uh, when we grew up and we were younger, you know, email was a really new way, but most of us still talked on the phone and now we've moved on to SMS and to kind of these more, uh, if you want to call it efficient language uh, uh, dispersions um, through SMS, especially, uh, but maybe we're on this learning curve and, and over time we'll become less and less detached as it becomes more normal um, and inject more empathy into those interactions. Yeah, uh, that yeah. kind of more closely mimic the physical world? Or do you think that if we don't make some sort of radical mental change, it's only going to get get worse? Yeah, I think it's an interplay. Um, like uh, we referenced the psychological researcher in, in group dynamics, Bruce Tuckman, um, and he had uh, the, the I think, four stages of uh, how groups form. Uh, so the first is, is forming when they first come together, everyone's sort of like, you know, friendly, there's a degree of politeness. Uh, the second stage is storming uh, when, when, when just like the conflicts start arising and, and voiced. Um, and then the, the whole group can abort at the storming, uh, storming phase. But if they stick with it, then the norming stage starts uh, forming and then the performing stage. And then that's when things really uh, hit the ground. And so... You know, maybe the uh, I think it's Internet 1.0 when Internet first came around with the digital tribes, which we referenced earlier. Everyone's friendly, you know, doing like silly, like dancing baby memes. Uh, so that was the forming stage. But now we're in the storming stage right, of the Internet. And like you said, uh, maybe the next stage, something needs to happen. Maybe it's an interplay, a dance between uh, mindset shifts and the technology. Because uh, I know like Twitter, for example, maybe Twitter um, is a platform that encourages narcissistic behavior. Like just, just, just to speak of one example I like to use, like sometimes when I'm tweeting something out, I don't have a huge amount of followers, but, you know, I, ha I have enough to, to get a few likes. And let's say if I get this cool idea for a tweet, right? And it's I, I look at it, I'm like, wow, it sounds so sexy, but it's not really like propositionally accurate. It's not, that's not something I really 100% believe to be true. I have to maybe put like what they call guarded premises in philosophy. I have to put maybe a but in there or a maybe in there, but I take it out because I know that but or maybe will like reduce my likes or my retweets or whatever. Uh, but so that's a, a narcissistic quality, right? It incentivizes me compromising the truth, me compromising truthfulness for the like, for the hit, for the attention, for the eyeballs on, on the artifacts I throw out there. And I see like, you know, individuals like you and me, and then there's a slew of people out there that are thinking these things through that are, they're trying to change not only our mindset, but do different practices. And I think, uh, there's going to be some changes soon. So I'm optimistic. Ultimately, I'm optimistic that we're going to get to the, the norming stage. Yeah. I, I, I really struggle because, um, I'm sure, you know, like yourself, you know, trying to produce content and, you know, the, the whole not the whole purpose, but one of the goals, right, is to to grow, uh, to enlarge your audience and and all that um, sort of thing that comes with it. And, you know, there's a real pull to kind of just do really vapid, meaningless, but popular type of content, right? Things, you know, with clickbaity titles or just tweets that that kind of um, that that, you know, are going to invite kind of um 
you know, within the the world that uh, that that I run in, kind of more more Bitcoin centric, that are going to make people really kind of interact with it because it reinforces their own um, belief systems. But you also want to be true to yourself, and you also, if you are trying to f- continue to uh, down this uh, path of kind of discovering um, wherever truth may may lead you, you know, it's 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 not it's not being honest. And I think, it, you know, if you're on a long enough time scale, I, I think that you're going to have a, a much higher quality of audience and um, just overall, you know, the way that your content is received, if you do kind of maintain that honesty, but it's, it's really difficult when you're trying to do that. And you look at other examples of people in your space and you go like, Oh man, like maybe I should just do something like that. And, you know, enlarge my audience 10 X in about half the time. Right. Yeah. It, it, like, I like this term that I'm trying to work out. Uh, and I'm on this platform called, I'm a, an ambassador matchmaker for a platform called letter.wiki, which is basically like an anti-narcissistic uh, social media platform where people engage in letter exchanges with each other. So you, you can go on my letter wiki, uh, type in my name there, and I'm, I'm having a lot of letter exchanges with interesting people and working through a bunch of ideas. And one of the ideas I'm working out is the metagame. Like, how do you play the metagame? It's uh, uh, like you zoom out and see the ecology of games that are active in your life, the ones that you're playing. And it gives you optionality to say, why are you playing this game? And do you really want to play this game? So one of the games that you mentioned is to increase likes, hits, uh, whatever. (laughs) And why? Is it because you're trying to make money on the internet? Um, Is it because uh, you've got narcissistic capture and you've got a high on the likes. Um, so yeah, it all depends uh, what games are you playing. For me, like maybe I am seduced by that a little bit right now, or maybe I'm captured in that world, but I feel a strong impulse towards being more on the authentic side in the internet. And, and, and I don't care if at least this point, I don't have a desire to make my podcast a uh, huge, right? I like the niche audience of, of weirdos that follow me and and people seem to be resonating uh like people reaching out like yourself and and engaging in discussions so i do think so similar to the philosophical allergies like kind of zoom out and, and look take an inventory of all the games in your ecology of games that you're playing and see which ones are really the ones that are gonna you know bring bring you the good life and then the next crisis was the sobriety crisis right so uh, the ingredient there is stimulation, like, uh, and we referenced this, this interesting study. Um, so in, in Australia, there was this male jewel beetle, and there, there were there were littering uh, in Australia. They were litter, littering these beer stubbies, these beer bottles that sort of mimic the female uh, uh, butt, right, uh, of the, the jewel beetle. And then the male jewel beetles, they just got like you know turned on by this. And they stopped having sex with the females. They were just having sex with the beer bottles, these beer stubbies, because the, the, the stubbies at the end mimic the, the, the female's butt. Um, and they were just going extinct. <laughs> they were dying off because then foraging ants started eating them and they, they got burnt by the sun and all this type of stuff. And then eventually they, they figured out what was happening. They removed the, the beer bottles or they changed it. And, um, you know, they came back. And so we use that metaphor of what's happening with us right now. That, that's... That term I just use is called supernormal stimuli. Uh, and it's, it's like an exaggerated um, 
kind of magnified version of evolved stimulus that uh, you know attracts us. So porn is an obvious example of uh, supernormal stimuli, but so is junk food, so is laugh tracks on, on comedy shows. And so is the like, which we were talking about. All social media, thanks to the profit motive, uh, they're fighting to win the attention economy. They're engaging in supernormal stimuli in order to get us hooked. So we just keep coming back and back and back. And, you know, this is making us a bunch of mimetic addicts, which is uh, leaving us vulnerable. Um, and I'll just jump into the, the next uh, crisis is what we call the warfare crisis and weaponization. Due to the fact that we're sort of mimetic addicts and we're, we're vulnerable, we're, we're being hijacked uh, as weapons for, for wars we're not even aware of. Uh, and we, we started off this section talking about Alexander Dugan, you know, he was touted as the, the most dangerous philosopher in the world or Putin's brain. And he wrote a book, uh, The Foundations of Geopolitics, that the Russian military apparently uses. Um, and they, he had uh, a recommendation in it that, you know, in order to create geopolitical disorder in the internal American uh, politics, that they should support all kinds of different ethnic uh, separatist guns group, uh, groups from conservative to, to left to get them to fight each other. Um, and if if the what happened in the 2016 election uh, was true with uh, the Internet Research Agency, Russians uh, apparent sock puppet troll army, uh, they were doing that. You know, they were sort of uh, funding Bernie Sandy, uh, Sanders rallies, uh, along with Trump rallies. They actually uh, made an anti and pro-Trump rally at the same time, the same day, I believe, just to cause the internal chaos. And they call this the chaos operations, right? So the idea is just to kind of understand the target audience through psychographic profiling, uh, create messages that are tuned to the trigger points of the audience. Uh, you can seek out real or fake incidents to weaponize and just stoke outrage for its own sake. Uh, and then the term that we like to use in this paper, and I, I, I appreciate it, is the outrage porn, right? So outrage porn is really the supernormal stimuli for the culture war. And, and, and uh, you know, back to the, the sobriety crisis, um, this to me um, reminds me a lot of kind of the, one of the mimetic tribes that you talked about um, or that you identified in there. And that's, Kind of at the top of the news, or at least uh, a lot of stories, um, a little bit less now, but uh, periodically over the last ten years, which is the, you know, the incel community, uh, the involuntary celibates, um, as they call themselves, uh, and these are mostly uh, young white men for the for the most part, although it's it's not exclusively, um, but you know, for the most part, these are a, a lot of you know young men who. Uh, lack kind of confidence or a lot of the traits that um, fem uh, that that women or or maybe not women either depending on their their own preferences um, find attractive right they have their they, they're having difficulties in kind of that very primal uh, and important aspect of 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 human existence which is to uh, uh, attract a partner um, and, a, and a mate um, to mm -hmm. go even more primal. Um, and, and to me, a, a lot of that, uh, what I see a lot in that community, uh, or at least in my very subjective experiences is a, um, kind of the, the pornography addiction and whether or not whatever the individual listeners opinion on, on, um, on that, that, that specific thing, 
um, there there are aspects of of um, addiction to that, and especially with the proliferation of it on the internet. Whereas thirty forty years ago, that was was not around, and you know, I wonder if that plays into an aspect of of lack of of, of self-discipline, I guess there's, I, I think there's always a reason why you can disagree with why these cultures had these things or um, what they were trying to achieve. But in every pretty much culture or religion or society, there's always, you know, these specific codes of conduct, promotion of self-discipline in one or more areas. Um, even if it's not a Judeo-Christian concept of sexuality, even in Rome, there were rules and codes within a society, even though they kind of embraced what we would call, I guess, a, a somewhat of a free love concept, I guess, depending on your status in the, in the society. And right. to me, this this makes a lot of these kids a lot more um, easier to target um, for other groups like, you know, white nationalists or um, maybe uh, I, I've seen kind of... Uh, people of that ilkuk fall in with with the sjw or social justice activist types as well um, as a way to find uh, meaning as well as to gain status if you can't do it within whatever group you happen to be in if you could find one maybe by calling yourself a feminist ally or calling yourself a white supremacist that you that you'll find that that sort of um uh, uh uh, hire, uh, be able to hire yourself in the, in the, in that specific group's hierarchy. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I, I don't think uh, porn is an exclusive to, you know, the incel community. I think all, all men mm-hmm. uh, have a, have a porn addiction. Uh, well, not all men, I should say, but there's a, there's a large uh, segment that are um, using pornography and there's this term. I really like uh, Philip, Philip Reef's uh, term called death works. And he used that as, as art that is meant to undermine the sacred underpinnings of a society. And if we lean on Durkheim's uh, understanding of the sacred uh, and the profane dichotomy, the sacred is what unifies uh, you know, uh, people together. So it's kind of repurpose the death works uh, phrase. It's, it's, I view it as sort of works of art. Uh, meant to undermine uh, communitas, undermine that belongingness that we were referring to. And I, I, I do think porn is, is one of the ultimate death works of uh, our society because it just really, um, you know, objectifies uh, uh, things and, and, and it just it just creates this, this separation. And, and especially if you're just masturbating to it, right? You're, you're not producing life that way. You're just, you're just throwing it away. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. I think that... Um, uh, that you know, there, there's varying opinions on on you know the the acceptability of of said art, um, but you know I think that even the the most uh, open minded individuals would um, uh, to that would say that there there are levels of which and depends on where they are personally, but would would say well this is maybe getting a little bit too far if you're never leaving your room and and that kind of stuff where where it's okay. actually inhibiting your your life. Um, but being cognizant of the time, I know that we have a hard outcome out here. We didn't even, uh, get the touch on, on kind of the history, uh, and modern history of the culture war. And I, I would like to have you, uh, back on here in the near future, uh, to, to continue that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and I was wondering where people, uh, or the, to let the listeners know where they can consume your content and where they can find you. Right. Um, 
yeah, I, I should have a better uh, like a website or something like this. But uh, follow me on Twitter, I guess. That's the, the, the best spot. That's where I do all my updates. Uh, Peter N. Limburg. You can follow my podcast, uh, taking somewhat of a sabbatical, but I think I'm going to do regular episodes. That's Intellectual Explorers Podcast. Uh, you can find it on all the platforms. And if you're in Toronto, uh, I run two groups here, one called Intellectual Explorers po- uh, Club and the other one Stoicism Toronto. And you can find both of those on uh, meetup.com. And I will have uh, all of your contact information as well as uh, any of the uh, other articles and, and notes and, and uh, things that we mentioned in the episode on the show notes at diginocrypto.com slash EP62. That's uh, EP62. And once again, Peter, thank you. Thanks so much, Dustin. It was fun. 